Hi, on Dark listeners, it's your host, Kasha Patel. So, I've always had a complicated relationship with the great outdoors. I rely on the fruits of nature for food, oxygen, water, and last resort places to go to the bathroom when you're on a 12-hour family car trip and your mom doesn't want to stop because she's almost in New Jersey. But I know our relationship with the environment isn't always positive or one-sided. Sometimes we manage to change the environment in a way that threatens us and then causes even more trouble. I was reminded of that when I read about the recent wildfires in the U.S. States like Colorado and California are having a very severe fire season. Vox reported that in some regions, 2017 had the second highest number of burn acres since 1960, and it's looking like it will be even worse this year. So far, 110 large fires have erupted on the West Coast this year, and maybe even more since I've recorded this podcast. As the Earth warms up and climate changes thanks to our greenhouse gas emissions, many regions are going through hotter and drier spells, which lead to more dire conditions for wildfires. But on top of that, we're actually starting some of the fires. The Spring Creek Fire in Colorado this June burned over 108,000 acres, making it the second largest fire ever in Colorado. And that was human-caused. It was started by a guy who didn't completely put out his campfire. Now, I know human-ignited fires aren't unusual. We've all seen those Smokey the Bear ads, Only you can prevent forest fires. Side note, I think it's weird that Smokey the Bear wore pants but no shirt. I was nine when I met him. He should be fully clothed. Anyways, I guess I was distracted by his bare chest because I guess I didn't realize the full extent of human influence on wildfires. There was actually a 2017 study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that found human-started wildfires, quote, accounted for 84% of all wildfires, tripled the length of the fire season, dominated an area seven times greater than that affected by lightning fires, and were responsible for nearly half of all area burned. The study analyzed two decades of government agency wildfire records. The National Park Service also reports on their website that as many as 90% of U.S. wildland fires are caused by humans. That's a really high number. I feel like 90% of my speeding tickets aren't even written by humans anymore. Thank you, photo and forest speeding cameras. Yes, some of the fires are intentional because people refresh the land for agricultural purposes. Some are utility company accidents, but some of them are just ridiculous. Did you know the biggest fire in Colorado was caused in 2002 when, not joking, a fire prevention technician with the U.S. Forest Service supposedly burned a letter from her estranged husband. Add burning letters from exes for causes of wildfires along with unsupervised campfires and gunfire during extremely dry conditions. Of course, officials put out warnings to not have open flames and extremely hot temperatures, but people just ignore them, or maybe they don't think it applies to them. But how do you caution someone against themselves? Today's guest might have an inkling. We're going to talk to a photographer who worked on a big feature for Undark called Breathtaking. It's about a type of air pollution all over the globe that was created by us and can have drastic health consequences. But first, let's travel to India. 
As humans move in on snake territory in Bangalore, they encounter more snakes, both venomous and harmless. Reporter Mary Rose Abraham spent some time with a snake rescuer in India who gets called in to capture the slithering reptiles in people's kitchens, bedrooms, fish ponds, and even an elevator shaft. But here's the kicker. Most snakes aren't trying to hurt you, but people panic when they see the creature and hurt the snake or themselves. So... Let's go for a ride with Mary Rose and the Snake Rescuer. We got a call about a snake in your premises. Uh, we are rescuers. Uh, is the snake still there? Yes, the woman confirms. The snake is definitely still there. And that's when Subhadra Cherakuri draws on her tall rubber boots and grabs her keys and cell phone. Just as she is about to leave, a call comes in for another snake sighting. So she roots around in the kitchen drawer for some tongs to add to her snake kit. Okay, so we are making uh, sure we have, you know, a small pair of uh, uh, chapati tongs because that's the only thing that we can actually use to rescue very small little baby hatchlings. We're heading to the first location, which is less than 10 minutes away. We need to get there fast, before the snake slithers away or people start really panicking. Most rescuers are volunteers, like Supadra, and they are not just helping snakes out of human habitats. They believe every rescue is a step toward reducing interactions between humans and animals, making it safer for each. Okay, so I think we've just reached uh, the first location. Uh, let's see if we can, you know, find any of the baby snakes. So let's try our luck. We head through a side gate into a patio area behind the kitchen. Next door, there's an empty field that's overrun with tall grass and weeds. The snake probably made its way into the house from there. Okay, it's behind a bunch of pipes, so we're just trying to take it out. And here she goes into the bottle. Yeah. So we got a really cute little cobra hatchling. <laughs> very, very cute. So I am just logging her in my app. Mark, can I just have that here? I have to log it. Mark McKenna Anthony is her husband and co rescuer. Subhadra takes a photo of the baby cobra, which she'll post on an app that allows snake rescuers around the country to keep track of their catches. Mark will take the cobra home for safekeeping, and we head back to the car. So, successful mission number one. Yeah, successful mission number one, now to number two. And let's see how that goes. <laughs> Very beautiful, wasn't it? If you say so, yes. <laughs> yeah, folks often think I'm nuts, yeah. <laughs> when I say snakes are beautiful. <laughs> We've got a 30-minute drive to the next location. That's enough time to get a bit into the backstory of snake rescues in India's cities. Gauri Shankar is working towards his PhD in herpetology, and he runs a training program that has instructed 700 people in rescue protocol, including Subhadra. Though he now specializes in king cobras in the forest, he spent 20 years relocating city snakes. There's hundreds and thousands of rats breeding right under your, your foundation stones or your gutters or drain pipes snakes are quite comfortable they can they'll get their food and there's enough hiding place we create in the city 
Snakes in a forest only have to watch out for predators, but in the city there are millions of eyes watching and millions of people fearing them. Most of the people lost the connection with the, with the nature. When they see a snake which is about 90 centimeters, they say it's about 900 centimeters or something. So maybe these, the check, common checkered keelback, which is just 90 centimeters, looks like an anaconda for them. India has more than 60 species of venomous snakes, but it's really just a few species, the big four, which are the most dangerous to humans. Cobra, Crete, soft-scaled viper, and Russell's viper. But people, lack of knowledge, ignorance, they do panic. They end up killing snakes or trying to capture them, they get bitten. Interactions between humans and animals can be deadly. The formal term is human-animal conflict, and according to official records, it claims at least one person's life every day in India. But those numbers only consider elephants and tigers. Deaths from snake bites are far higher. In fact, the highest in the world. 45, 46,000 people die annually. These are the reported uh, deaths, right? But I'm sure that more people dying, that these are purely accidents. The vast majority are in rural areas where workers get bitten in fields and farms and healthcare is much harder to access. But as cities in India expand, snakes are crowded out of their natural habitat and city dwellers become increasingly likely to encounter them as well. The snake rescuer's job is to get the snakes safely out of human habitats and educate the community on minimizing dangerous interactions. We're getting closer to the second snake's location. The map says we're going to be there in about eight minutes. I'm hoping Mr. Snake, whoever he is, is still there. Fingers crossed. You're back online. You are on the fastest route despite usual traffic. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can tell me the absolute most urban concrete jungle type of rescue you've had? <laughs> well, I've had some crazy ones. <laughs> like, you know, for example, uh, you know, some time back, uh, uh, there was a high-rise apartment complex, a completely concreted campus. Somebody saw two baby cobras, you know, go into the uh, elevator shaft. I had to climb into the shaft and they were down there, actually. So we just had to, you know, pick them out of there. You're one of the very few women snake rescuers. Have you ever faced any challenges because you're a woman? Sometimes, you know, people actually ask me, okay, are you going to be calling somebody else? Or do you, are you sure you can handle this? And I'm like, uh, yes, well, I have, uh, you know, <laughs> rescued quite a few snakes before. In fact, in the last six years, she's rescued about 70 snakes a year. Location number two is right across from a large lake. It's an airy, glass-fronted architectural firm right in the heart of Bangor. One of the employees saw a snake make its way down from a tree into the fish pond in front of the building. Supadra uses a long stick with a hook to gently swish through the murky water, and she finally lifts the snake up out of the pond. So that what we've got him, we've bagged him. It's a rat snake, it's a non-venomous one. Uh, no, it's a non-venomous snake, completely non-venomous. It's a rat snake. Most likely would have come here. I think you're getting a lot of frogs or something. We head back to the car. Subhadra with a hook in one hand and a snake in the bag in the other. Now that he's bagged, I'm no longer afraid to stand right next to him. He's quite large. Yeah, he's, uh, I think he's almost about six and a half feet. Uh, Full-grown uh, rat snake. <laughs> Absolutely harmless guy, at least to humans. 
Today's catch is a cobra and a rat snake, the two most common species for rescuers in the city. And Subhadra says she can get up to six calls a day, especially now in the rainy season, when all the little hatchlings are around. She'll keep the snakes at home securely and release a few at a time every other day. She has to pick just the right spot to let them go, a place out of the way of human habitats, but within a certain distance from their capture point. Gowri Shankar explains. If you release them within their habitat, within their home bridge, they do manage, they do come back or they, they suffer because they know the place. Yes, beyond three kilometers or four square kilometers, I don't think so. the snakes will survive. He will starve to death. Finding green space within those limits and far away from houses will be increasingly difficult as the city expands. For now, Subhadra has a large lake near her house with areas of shrubs and trees where no one ventures. Today she's going to release a non-venomous trinket snake. It's a slender type of constrictor and harmless to people. She carefully unties the bag and takes hold of the corners, which have been stitched in a special way. So that when you hold those corners, the snake cannot get to you from inside the bag. The snake peeks its head out. The trees, the tall grass, and the distance from any people should make it a nice new home. He's trying to see where he is, sense where he is. And yeah, there he is. He's going, slithering off very slowly. Yep, there he's gone. Will you ever see him again? I don't think so. Going by this experience, I think he will just stay away and, you know, find his happy burrows here. And he has enough of space. He's, you know, safely away from any human habitation. So unlikely that anyone's going to call us for rescuing this snake again. <laughs> Snake rescuers in India, or anywhere for that matter, have a tough task to get people to not panic when they see a snake. I mean, it's hard to see a snake stop and get close enough to see, is that snake going to inject me with a life-threatening venom or just leave a fang mark? And then our snake rescuer Supadra said that a lot of young people watch YouTube videos and think that snake rescuing is easy, so they capture the snake, they take selfies, and then they get injured. As we heard, around 46,000 people die annually in India from snake bites. But there's a much greater threat for Indians, and actually people all around the globe. It affects millions of people. You can't see it, but you can feel the impact on your lungs depending on where you are. It is air pollution. Senior editor David Corcoran talks to photographer Larry Price about a new feature on Undark called breathtaking, which is about a certain type of air pollution called PM 2.5 that is hazardous to our health. Let's take a listen. Larry, let's start by talking about this project, breathtaking. And we should say that you are a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. So uh, the assignment here was to go out and photograph air pollution. Larry, I have to ask you, what drew you to this subject in the first place? Well, I'm a documentary photographer. So, you know, my passion and my, my pursuit is to record visual stories about the human condition. And I've worked in the pollution sector fairly extensively and consistently uh, since 2012 and really felt like 
there there was an untold story here. You know, this this issue of PM 2.5, as much as been written about it in, you know, in scientific circles, when I use that term, I always have to sort of explain it. You know, my mission here is to bring awareness. It's to put, you know, a human face on the tragedy of a certain type of pollution. And hopefully some of those images will resonate with people who are charged with making a difference. You know, I've been covering the environment and public health for years, and I confess I had never heard this term PM 2.5. What is it exactly? It's a scientific uh, descriptor. What it literally means is particulate matter, uh, hence the PM, that is 2.5 microns or less in size. There was, there was a huge article in uh, the British medical journal Lancet, and in that there was some theories and data and you know all sorts of evidence that this particular type of atmospheric pollution called PM 2.5, you know, the, the health effects were, were We're killing people. So you get to the city of Patna in northern India, and uh, your assignment is to take pictures of air pollution. These particles, as you just said, are really too small to see with the naked eye. So how do you take pictures of it? Well, you can certainly see them, you know, collectively. I mean, uh, I, I was just... I was amazed and overwhelmed, uh, you know, when I arrived in Patna. Patna is a huge city um, in northern India. Populations, you know, two million, maybe three million in the uh, large metropolitan zone, uh, you know, that extends beyond the city into the villages. It's in far northern India, somewhat isolated for its size, and it is very close to the Himalaya mountain range. I mean, you can drive to you know, Kathmandu in about eight hours. Uh, it's an amazing place. It's an ancient city. And it's actually undergoing a, a building boom there. It's, a, you know, it's a, it's the bustling economy, and it's in a mecca for tens of thousands of uh, people who are moving from the countryside seeking employment opportunities. So that, that puts an amazing level of stress on the city and the infrastructure there. But when you arrive in Patna, I mean, it... It's stunning. I mean, I remember walking out of the airport and looking up in, um, you know, the middle of the afternoon, and it, it's just it just was this thick, brown, syrupy-looking soup of toxic atmosphere. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I'd never seen anything like it. This was the first trip in this project. We ultimately decided on pursuing uh, uh, coverage in, in seven different locations around the world. So this was the first trip back in uh, November of 2017. And um, I've covered pollution stories before, but had not really been in situations where the atmospheric pollution was was so bad. Is there any evidence, Larry, that this uh, level of pollution is actually harming people in uh, Patna, India? Well, there's a lot of data to support that and a lot of anecdotal evidence, certainly. That's what I was certainly after visually. But if you go, if you look at the recent Lancet reports and, and a lot of the recent data from 2015 on, it's estimated that in India alone, a million people are, are killed by, by pollution. And I'm talking about atmospheric pollution. 
And by killed, I'm talking about people who have a tendency toward having high blood pressure, heart ailments. The big one is respiratory conditions. The biggest issue that people tend to get, or actually there are two, COPD, you know, which is a lung disease, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and asthma. You know, those are the two big ones. And then, you know, combine that if you have you have those conditions. And it's arguable that the pollution causes those diseases. It's demonstrable that the pollution aggravates those conditions. And the Lancer report details this in, in, in an amazing, amazing data points. Their estimation was is that if pollution initiatives actually worked in India or in Patna, the, the average life expect, expectancy would actually grow by four years. Some of the pictures that you took of people affected by this type of air pollution are just stunning and and really poignant. Obviously, podcast, not a visual medium, (laughs) but I wonder if I could ask you to describe a couple of the people that you photographed. I tried to avoid just doing kind of these general views of atmosphere and smog and pollution. And of course, I took those photographs. But the overarching theory, of course, was let's try to describe and show the literal health effects. In, in this series, we're trying, to, we're trying to describe what PM2.5 is, but we're also really trying to show what it does, what it's like, what it, how, how people feel being trapped under this, this blanket of, of toxicity 365 days a year. So my approach as a documentary photographer, I try to humanize my visual reporting. I try to get out on the street. I try to find situations, seek out situations where I can show the effects of these conditions. I break it down into smaller components of the contributors to the PM2.5 pollution and then take those apart. It takes an inordinate amount of time. It can be an amazing journey of discovery, but it can also be really frustrating. You're trying to get something as simple as showing traffic, for instance, and you're so stuck in the traffic that you can't get a good picture of traffic. It's an amazing process, it's exhausting, but at the end of the day, it's all about the human experience. Some of the faces are, are so striking. Um, and um, one thing that uh, was particularly affecting, as far as I was concerned, was um, that the, the people you photograph are often not very old. They're in their 60s or maybe early 70s, and yet they look uh, so much older. Yeah, my first experience talking to someone who was obviously having health issues. You know, it was a there was a seventy five year old man and 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 one of the, you know, I guess I would describe it as sort of a middle middle class neighborhood near Central Patna. I was interested in showing uh, or exploring the notion of how indoor cooking and cold sort of coalesced into the health effects. So by doing that, I was able to spend time with a few families and, and sort of try to understand their daily routine. And this couple, they, they would get up at you know 5.30 or 6 in the morning, and they would start boiling water to make their morning tea and uh, go through their routine, pretty much the same way I do here in Ohio when I'm home, except Instead of turning on the tea kettle on an efficient 
gas stove, they would collect coal, cow dung, whatever they could find to burn, paper, bits of wood, and that sort of thing, and they would ignite these materials over a tiny little clay stove to boil their water or cook their, cook their food and their meals. And the entire uh, interior of, the, of their living space would just fill with this, this toxic smoke. And coal, when coal burns, it's incredibly dirty. And I mean, it's like one of the biggest con- 2.5 contributors on the planet. And um, he was constantly, uh, you know, coughing and obviously having problems breathing. And he spent most of his time sitting on this, this little cot in this room adjacent to their kitchen, breathing in this thick, acrid smoke. Um, so you take that and you multiply that by you know a million people every day, three times a day, and you can imagine the amount of carbon that from that one little source, something that's unlikely is a cooking fire that goes into the atmosphere and contributing to the overall PM 2.5 count. So while I was spending time uh, with this couple, I asked them through my translator if they knew that this was harmful. The man coughed a couple of times and was breathing and wheezing, you know, and he's, he told my translator that basically what he said was, what are we going to do? Um, this is all I, all I know, and this is what, we're, what we have to do. So it was sort of jarring to realize that this technology for clean clean fuel and uh, clean food preparations available. But then I started thinking about it, and you look at the socioeconomic levels of of some of the people and some of the neighborhoods, and, you know, they're doing what they can do to get by. Uh, In some cases, they can change. A few people told me that they like to burn wood because it makes the food taste better. So you have have, uh, custom and cultural concerns, obviously. But, you know, in essence, they were polluting their indoor environment day in and day out. And they were were literally paying the price with with their health. It's such a complicated problem, uh, and as you say, if people have no choice but to burn coal or to burn wood just in order to survive, it's very hard to see a way out of this problem. Do you see any hope that uh, the situation will improve? I can remember thinking many times walking down the street with my cameras, sort of looking at all of the, the fabric and the texture of India under this this toxic shroud and thinking to myself, this is hopeless. I mean, how can this ever be turned around? And it's kind of like the old proverb, how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. I think it's awareness, it's education, it's government initiatives to to make some hard and fast decisions about transportation infrastructure, maybe subsidies for uh, people to get the proper fuel simple little things like that. To me, it all comes back to education, and it all comes back to government initiatives. There was a really poignant and distressing quote in the story. If you, if you pull, up, pull up the India piece and, and look at it, environmental minister for Bihar state, which is the state that Patna is located in, he says on the record that he doesn't think there's a pollution problem in Patna. And this is at the very top tier of the, of, the, of the government. So until people can stop politicizing environmental concerns and, and come together and work toward 
solving the problems, putting agendas aside, dealing with traffic, dealing with emissions, education, you know, no, I, I, I don't see a lot of hope for it, which is somewhat distressing. And my point of view is, is uh, this was the, the first trip I made on this project, and, and in subsequent projects, I've seen progress being made in unlikely places and in other places where you would think that initiatives would be more on the positive side, I see it stalled. You uh, made an important point uh, about our series, Breathtaking, uh, which is that it's not just photographs. There are articles by local journalists. Uh, there are graphics um, and uh, maps that really give you a, a very rounded picture of uh, this problem of uh, particulate matter and uh, and its consequences. But the photographs are really central to it. Well, the beauty of the project uh, that Andark is starting to publish in this series is the depth and breadth. It has narrative. It has really well-written prose. We're doing classic documentary photography that I'm trying to make as powerful as I can. And it also has multimedia components and, and amazing graphics. So we're, we're coalescing all this data, all this visual information into a coherent, powerful piece that tells the story of human suffering and the science behind it. I'm most successful when I can when I can make a photograph that, you know, I, I call it the double take. You're looking at a series of pictures and you just stop. I'm, I want to make pictures that stop you in your tracks. And sometimes those pictures are, are beautiful. Sometimes they're, they're discouraging. Sometimes they're desperate. But the idea is that I, w I want people to look at my pictures and appreciate them for their, for their humanity. And I want people to say, oh my gosh, how can this be happening? I mean, if, if I can do that every now and then, I feel like I'm doing my job, you know, as a journalist and a photographer. That's a great answer. Larry, what's your next stop? Uh, I just got back from um, southern Chile. I was in Santiago and further south in Patagonia, where I was working for a few weeks. And then um, in late November, early December... Uh, I'm planning a trip back to Europe, um, to the Balkans. So that'll be our last installment of seven parts. So you are really traveling the globe for this series. Larry Price is the photographer for the Undark series, Breathtaking, about the type of air pollution called PM 2.5. Larry, I want to thank you so much for doing this series in the first place, and then for coming on the podcast to talk about it. Well, thank you, David. Great to be here. This has been an amazing, if exhausting, project, and uh, I'm sort of looking forward to um, getting this out there, hoping to do my part to create an awareness um, for such an important, if unknown, type of pollution that, you know, in some ways, every one of us, every single day, has to deal with. All right, Undark listeners, that is our episode. Thank you for joining us. And remember to stay safe and smart out there. 
We are produced by Lydia Chain and the music is by the Undark team and I'm your host, Kasha Patel. Talk to you next month.